3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. We'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening and we've got Peter there um, pushing buttons there. And it's approximately 4 o'clock. And just wanted to let listeners know what's coming up on the show. First up, we're going to be speaking with Geraldine from the Refugee Action Collective and she's going to be speaking about Manus Island and about how asylum seekers and refugees have been um, have been treated very badly, a gross violation of human rights and countless injustices, and we're going to be talking about that and discussing what's happened, just to give a little bit of an update on the rallies that have been happening. Where have the asylum seekers gone what um, are our leaders doing about it? What is the Liberal government, the Turnbull government, doing about it? And also looking at increased police powers in Victoria and discussing um, an incident that happened at the last rally. On, um, as well as that, second on the show, as a follow-up to International Disability Day yesterday, um, I will be, well, we will both be interviewing Ricky Chaplin, who is the advocacy officer at Blind Citizens Australia and also has lived experience of blindness and vision impairment. And yesterday, Ricky could not be interviewed. And so we thought we'd interview him on the Do and Time show and speak about disability issues and as a follow-up and talk about the disability insurance scheme and link it up to prisons. So it's approximately 4.01 and shortly I'll be lining up Geraldine from the Refugee Action Collective. I will just go to a song now. This is um, Look the Other Way by Raw Power from Italy. They toured Melbourne um, on Friday and they went to Adelaide and so they're touring Australia. Raw Power. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And on the line, we have Geraldine from the Refugee Action Collective who's going to be speaking about some a series of rallies that have happened um, about the people, on asylum seekers on Manus Island and the fact that um, electricity and water and all sorts of essential services were cut off and that they were moved off in a very violent manner. Hello, Geraldine. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. How are you going? Good, thanks. And you? Yeah, not too bad. Lovely to have you. Now, Geraldine, I'm wondering, because we haven't had anyone from the Refugee Action Collective for a couple of weeks to a month on the show, could you just give us a little bit of an update about what's been happening with Manus Island and talk about some of the, the rallies that have happened in, in uh, Melbourne? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so probably the most uh, significant development on Manus Island over the last month has been the 23-day siege um, that the... Australian government waged on the Manus Island Detention Centre and on the uh, refugees uh, who who are who are imprisoned within that centre. Um, so basically, uh, they decided that they wanted to move uh, the refugees out of uh, Manus Detention Centre and into another detention centre on Manus Island um, uh, that was incomplete and remains incomplete. Um, and in response to this, the refugees are. Uh, organised democratically to peacefully um, resist uh, the efforts of the Australian government to move them. Um, and for 23 days, they held out, uh, even when the government cut off water, cut off electricity, trashed their belongings, uh, broke and poisoned the well that they were using to collect water to, to stay alive. Um, despite all of this, they, they maintained their peaceful resistance um, until on the 23rd day, they were beaten um, quite severely uh, by the government. Uh, and, and their kind of, you know, lackeys in, in PNG uh, and forcefully moved into the new uh, detention centre or centres. So let's let's talk about that then. So when you say they were moved on, what what mm. were the plans for these asylum seekers? What, what, the what are they going to do with them? Well, they moved them into two new centres on Manus Island, uh, Hillside and West House. Um, and the refugees are now calling Hillside Hellside because these new centres that the government has built um, are completely inadequate um, housing. So uh, a lot of them, a lot of parts of the centres are actually unfinished. 
There's reports that in one of the centres there's no dining hall, there's no kitchen, uh, people are without beds, people, uh, electricity and water is cut off intermittently. Um, and I noticed recently, uh, just today, Beirut Buchani, the Kurdish Iranian journalist, was tweeting from Manus um, saying that people don't have enough food. Uh, so that was kind of the government's plan, apparently, was basically to move them out of one hellhole into another, um, which is just as inadequate, if not worse. So what's the stance of the Turnbull government about this? What, what, what does it plan? Surely they can't stay in their centres forever, can they? In, no, indefinite detention is is not healthy. Any detention is not healthy, no, actually. No, that's right. It's um, it's really, really damaging to people's um, emotional and physical health. Um, and I think the gov- the Turnbull government, you know, this is a crisis that will not go away. Yep. Um, and they have these kind of little short term plans that they're always trying to put in action. The US deal was one of them. Um, but I think the reality is that um, the only option for the Turnbull government and the only option for, you know, the, the Labor government that presumably will come in in the next term is going to be to bring the refugees here to Australia um, and give them the option of resettlement here or in another country. Um, but, but certainly, first and foremost, resettlement in Australia um, and the immediate evacuation of, of Manus. Like, that's really the only option... Um, in this situation, the US deal is taking years and years and years. And, you know, refugees are dying every year. We, we don't have time to wait for these kind of silly little deals that Turnbull wants to cook up with people. We, it's very simple. We, we evacuate them, we bring them here, and, and we, um, we give them a safe place to live. So, and I find it interesting also that the New Zealand deal was not accepted by the Turnbull government. Mm-hmm. Like there was a chance that the New Zealand Prime Minister was advocating for some of the refugees to go there. Mm. Yeah, that's right, 150, um, which of course would fall short of, of what is needed. Yeah, of but course. Nevertheless, you know. At least it would have been something. It would have been something, that's right. I think um, the Turnbull government has long maintained that New Zealand is backdoor to Australia, <laughs> um, which is absurd. Like it's very much a part of their... Um, I think the cruelty and, and in many ways the kind of madness of um, their border control policy. Um, so that's it's really about, um, you know, there's, there's nothing rational about this. Like on Madison Nauru, there are a few thousand people. It's a drop in the ocean. Like they're not going to make any difference to, a, you know, no one would notice if we brought the few thousand refugees here. The only people who would notice would be the refugees who have somewhere safe to live. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but, you know, that's not the log- there's no logic to their policy. So the refusal of the New Zealand deal, there was no logic to that. It's just about them presenting their hard line on immigration um, and, you know, trying to, trying to leverage it for, you know, whatever electoral gain. Um, but I think increasingly we're seeing thousands and thousands of people coming out on the streets you know, we've had people, you know, from Russell Crowe onwards kind of on, on social media, we've had celebrities denouncing the policy. But I think there is a, a, a shift in public opinion that this is not acceptable anymore. We can't treat people like this. And I'm hopeful that with increased mobilisation and increased organising that we can really change this policy. Yeah, especially because um, it, it appears that these, these refugees don't have any medical attention. And there's yeah. mental health problems, there's self-harm, yeah. and all because they've come by boat. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, mean come on. Crazy. I mean, those, those detention centres are mental, health, uh, mental illness factories. Like, the Australian government is creating a crisis of mental illness, um, and now they're refusing to treat it. So people are actually, in the new centres, not able to access the medication they need and not able to access proper psychiatric help. So they're, they're now punishing people um, for the problem that the government itself has created. Um, and, you know, this, this question of the boats, like we have people, refugees and asylum seekers, who come into Australia by plane constantly. And it doesn't, you know, that's fine. And so we should. We should be accepting people. The difference between a refugee who comes by boat and by plane is nothing. There is no difference. It's simply the mode of arrival. Um, and we need this, uh, the absurd distinction between the two, you know, it has to end um, because all it is is creating a, a humanitarian crisis um, and really, really seriously damaging people. 
So we actually interviewed Max Costello from the Refugee Action Collective mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago and he was a an encyclopedia of information. You know, he spoke about WorkSafe um, legislation mm-hmm. and he looked at the fact that really it's not only a humanitarian crisis but it could be deemed illegal as well to, you know, the way that, that people are being treated. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question that it's illegal. It's illegal by, you know, the according to the Human Rights Convention, it's, you know, you would never get away with treating people like that. Uh, well, I say this, but actually people are treated very, you know, Indigenous people are treated very, yeah. very poorly in detention, as we know. But, yeah. um, yes, it, it is illegal by, by our, you know, by the Human Rights Convention and much international law that we're signed up to. Um, I think if people could see what goes in those on in those detention centres, uh, you know, the, the, the gut reaction is this, this can't be so, like we can't allow this to happen. So I think, um, yeah, it's, it's quite clear that it's, that it's, it's wrong by any kind of standard of, of, what, of what our, our um, democracy should, should look like and how our government should behave. I think the question... I think what's clear, though, it's been going on for so long and we've had kind of multiple different legal avenues explored, but I just think the reality is, is that whatever we present, if it's just a piece of paper, it doesn't matter how many... You know, in how many pieces of international law, you know, the, the Australian government is breaking, they will weasel their way out of it. Yeah. And what we really need is, you know, thousands and th- hundreds of thousands of people out on the streets, refugees, campaigning in their communities, you know, building, you know, building a, a new sentiment in their in their communities, in their neighbourhoods and suburbs that says we need to, to welcome refugees and bring them here. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, look, Geraldine, what I'm about to say is is a little bit controversial. You and I talked a little bit that, about this mm-hmm. off air. And I know, we, I don't want to deviate from Manus, but at the same time, we cannot ignore the fact that the right-wingers are out again, right-wing politi- politicians, well, I wouldn't call them politicians, but right-wing fascists are coming out. Mm. And it's because of the economy going down, isn't it? Mm. And there are more increased powers um in Australia, aren't there? Is it true, and I want to put this in context um, and sift through this information so that we don't get the media hype and we get the truth, is it true that the fascists took over one of the rallies recently and try- and took the microphone away and then someone got beaten up by the police? Um, so what happened was I, I wouldn't say that the fascists took over by any means. There was one fascist. Right. Um, and he's made himself known multiple times at refugee protests. This wasn't the first time. Yep. Um, it's one one man, um, and he is a serial provocateur. He likes to make a mess of things and disturb, you know, what is otherwise a peaceful rally. Yep. Um, and he did briefly take the microphone. Uh, someone then, um, with you know, acting on all the right instincts, tackled him and took the microphone back. Unfortunately, that man, the anti-fascist, was arrested by the police. Um, so Sounds familiar. Very, yeah, I mean, it's a story that I, I think many of us have heard before, um, that the police would target the anti-racist protester rather than the fascist is, you know, indicative of where their priorities lie. Um, I think we have to be pretty kind of realistic, though. Like, it's true that across the world uh, we are seeing the rise of the right I mean, tonight Milo Yiannopoulos is speaking in Melbourne um, and that is absolutely shameful and he should be protested and he will be. Um, but I think at this particular rally on Friday, the, it was one mad, you know, there was one horrible fascist and it was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pro-refugee protesters. Good. Uh, so he, he was, you know, there's no question that he was outnumbered um, and I think we, are, we have the, the moral high ground with this question. Um, and I think people are seeing that, um, and I think you know, sentiment is changing in our favour, not in theirs. I'm hoping that's true, but I'm ho- I'm hoping the arrestee is getting the help that he needs. Uh, I don't think that uh, he was charged in the end. That's okay, he was he was beaten up, huh? That'd yeah, be right. yeah, yeah. But he, uh, my understanding is that he wasn't charged. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting, and we will discuss this on the show. The Do and Time show is um, committed not only to refugees and asylum seekers, but 
It's also committed to being a watchdog for um, looking at increased police powers and mm-hmm. keeping an eye on that because every, a lot of people are demonised through that and the right to protest is also um, eroded. Mm. I think... Um, oh, sorry, were you... No, that's all right. Go on. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think um, the main thing we, we have to keep keep our eye on or keep our sights set on, I guess, is, you know, there's been a little bit of talk about how the police have been stopping uh, sometimes, not always, but because sometimes they can't because there's too many of us, but trying to stop us marching to Federation Square. Um, And I think the main kind of lesson that we can draw is that when there's thousands and thousands of us, they can't stop us because we're flooding the streets. Um, And I think if we want to kind of, you know, um, assert ourselves and, you know, assert our our right to march uh, for... The, the refugees on Manus, and the most the most important thing we can do is build the refugee movement, uh, and that means go. You know, if you're a union member, pass the motion in your union in support of refugees. Getting your workmates along for the next rally. You know, if you're in the LGBT IQ community, you know, talking about why there's no, you know, there should be no pride intention and why we, you know, we have a common struggle with the refugees on Manus and Nauru. We all need to come together, you know, in our hundreds of thousands, I think, to, to march. And then, you know, the police can try that they won't be able to stop us. Thank you, Jordine. No, that that's very important. That's a very valid comment. And what's, just finally, what's happening for Human Rights Day? And when is so, it? Yes, yeah, so we've got a rally coming up at the State Library on Human Rights Day, which is Sunday the 10th of December at 2pm. Um, and it will be great to have everyone along there is a very important, um, important kind of rallying point, I think, now that the siege is over. Um, and in the lead-up to that, so uh, this coming Friday at 5.30pm in the State Library, we're doing a kind of paint-the-town refugee evening, um, which is similar to what they did during the Yes campaign where, you know, we saw rainbow posters and rainbow shorts everywhere. We're trying to do the same thing for refugees. So, you know, both of those events are really important and be great to see lots of people at, at both of them. I just really want to, on behalf of the Doing Time show and 3CR, thank the Refugee Action Collective. Look, Peter and I have just interviewed some wonderful activists from the from your collective. You've, you've done some great work. Oh, great. Yeah, no, thanks, thanks for having me on. Good on you. Right. so do you have any final comments? Uh, no, I think I think I said, said my piece. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good on you. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for um, all you know. Keep covering the topic; it's it's so yep. important. Take care. Thanks a lot. Marissa. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. And that was Geraldine from the Refugee Action Collective, speaking about refugee rights and asylum seekers, and talking about the siege on Manus Island. And we also looked at increased police powers in Victoria. And it's approximately four twenty-one. And we're going to be shortly um, interviewing Ricky Chaplin from Blind Citizens Australia about um, the lived experience of blindness as a follow-up to Disability Day and also looking at the highs and lows of the Disability Insurance Scheme. And you're back with the Doing Time show, 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And it's approximately 425 and we're, we're going to be speaking um, with Ricky Chaplin, who is from Blind Citizens Australia. He's the Advocacy Officer. Hello, Ricky. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. How are you? Good, thank you. Lovely to have you. And Peter's, I'd like to introduce you to my co-host, Peter, as well. Hi, Ricky. G'day, Peter. Yeah. So, you know, Ricky, we're having you onto the show um, as a very special guest, as a follow-up to International Disability Day. Um, and the theme for that was um, disability pride, and that yes. was that happened yesterday, as you'd be aware. And there were lots of celebrations, weren't they, all over the country? There were. No, there were lots of celebrations, and uh, we'll come to another issue that was sort of associated with that in a minute, if we can. But, sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, go ahead. Did, yeah. did you want to talk about that f- um, first? Well, it was kind of ironic that um, yesterday our CEO Emma Benison uh, was caught in Sydney Airport. Uh, and had some difficulty with Virgin Airline with her meet and assist process. And quite ironic that this happened on the International mm. Day of People with Disabilities. Um, what happened, Ricky? Who, 
Yes, for those who haven't seen the uh, activity on Facebook, Emma was basically forgotten by a supervisor um, and so she missed her flight and had to go through all kinds of different hoops to get the attention of Virgin staff so that she could be uh, put onto another flight. And, um, yeah, as a result, she wasted several hours in trying to get home uh, to Hobart in Tasmania um, and, of course, suffered a great deal of, of stress and anxiety, which any of us would have, um, and is totally blind, as am I. And I can only imagine what that would have been like for me in that kind of situation. But uh, So they didn't yeah, help her? Very disappointing. They, they didn't so, assist her? Um, they did in the end, but they, they basically forgot. Um, oh. So, yeah, it's oh, uh, please. You know, quite a shocking experience. And as I say, quite ironic, given you know the occasion that it was and after such a successful weekend that she'd had with BCA. So, um, yeah, very disappointing, and we certainly will be following up on that one. But, yeah, just thought I'd mention that, um, given that it was the uh, Day of International uh, of People with uh, Disability yesterday. Ricky, that's that's actually quite appalling. You, you know, you you don't you don't actually forget about someone that's blind if they don't can't get from A to B in a crowded and unfamiliar environment. It's degrading. Absolutely. Yes. Um, I mean, we we rely on people in unfamiliar environments like airports, of course, to be able to uh, get from A to B uh, and to conduct our daily business. If people aren't going to do the right thing, it's going to make life incredibly difficult for us. And it's really not too much to ask that uh, somebody does take responsibility. It is part of their job uh, and it, it needs to happen and we need to know that it's going to happen without question. Yeah, well, you know what? I hope that that can be followed up. That's, that's not very good at all. from our angle. Yeah, we, we intend to meet with, uh, with Virgin next week. So, yeah, there are things on the way there. Ricky, thank you for mentioning that. I think that's a very, very, very valid and important topic. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's this is actually a really good note to start on, isn't it? Because yeah. it really looks at the fact that, you know, the independence of blind and vision impaired people is very often eroded, isn't it? And um, we, we need to actually have systems put in place to improve that which is why I'm, we invited you on to talk about um, not to rubbish the disability insurance scheme because that's not what we're trying to do, is it, Ricky? It's, no, it's not. No, to, we're not going to be rubbishing anything. We're not going to be saying that it's... Um, but also, I don't want to whitewash things either, you know? And I'm wondering if you could just um, start off by talking about the some of the submissions that BCA has written to the Productivity Commission and that you've been involved in, and just talk a little bit about some of the the challenges um, that blind and vision impaired people have experienced during the planning process, like for example, sure. braille technology, transport, mm. and taxis. Yep. Um, so one of the we, we put in a submission to the Productivity Commission earlier in the year, which was looking at the costs of operationalising the NDIS. And what we really stressed in that submission um, was that it was not appropriate to view the implementation of the NDIS purely through an economic lens. In other words, it wasn't appropriate to, to cut corners in terms of cost just because you might get a cheaper piece of technology, for example. It may not do the job that a person who's blind or vision impaired is needing it to do. Um, and... So it, it wasn't necessarily the right thing to do to go for the cheapest. Uh, we need quality uh, as opposed to you know, a, a cheap way out. Uh, so that's just one example. Uh, other, other issues we covered were things like the episodic needs that people who are blind and vision impaired have, particularly around orientation and mobility. Yep. So there needs to be room, uh, budgeting room in a person's plan uh, to be able to uh, say, okay, well, I've just moved house or I've changed job or I'm undertaking a new voluntary activity, for example, and I need to learn how to get from A to B and I need that to happen now. That can happen in the middle of a planning cycle. So you might have made your plan six months beforehand, for example, and you've had a change of circumstances. 
Um, and what we said was that that shouldn't have to trigger a major planning review just to get those sort of supports in place. The system needs to be flexible enough that it can cope with uh, some level of spontaneity, if you like. Um, and there's a couple of ways that you can address that. So firstly, you can create enough headroom, so to speak, in a person's uh, individual plan, or you might approach it from still providing some block funding, what we call block funding, to uh, service providers who specialise in something like orientation and mobility, for example, uh, to provide those services as required. Um, so, yeah, we, we advocate to some degree that so, you know it is appropriate to have a bit of a mix of block funding and individualised funding. So just to explain, what's happening with the NDIS model is that where once services received funding from governments in what we call block form, so it was a, a major amount of funding, it might be a couple of hundred thousand dollars, for example, to provide services to multiple people at once, that funding is being redirected uh, to individuals to do with that funding what they see fit uh, according to the plan that they develop with the National Disability Insurance Agency. Uh, so there's a big shift in, in the model under which these services are being provided. Uh, and so with that shift can come some confusion and there certainly has been a level of inconsistency around how those funds are distributed uh, to individuals, who's being approved for what, for example. Um, one of the big ones we're starting to see, unfortunately, is funding for dog guides. Um, so some people have had no problem at all in getting funding for, uh, for dog guides. Others have had to go through all sorts of processes uh, to get that same funding. Um, in fact, they want to see quotes from guide dog agencies in some cases where other people have not had to provide that level of information at all. Um, and so it, it really creates confusion and it's creating the need really for unnecessary plan reviews when these sorts of things crop up. So a lot of the work that I've been doing as advocacy officer is supporting people around um, challenging those bureaucr bureaucracies uh, and organising plan reviews and pointing out that this stuff needs to happen quickly. It doesn't need to go through some major bureaucratic yeah. process and happen six months down the road. It's got to happen now because you're impacting on a person's life day to day. Um, so, yeah, um, you might want to sort of redirect my, my line of thinking at this point because there's just so much to No, come. no, it's true but, what you're so saying. I'm happy to it, comment on... No, on I'm glad that you, you talked about that because that's a really good a, a good introductory way to start. I mean, I think, you know, the one-size-fits-all um, mentality is, is very difficult and I suppose I just want to respond to what you've said here cause, um, and in a good way, and that is that, you know, blind and vision-impaired people can shower and go to the toilet and get dressed. Do you know what I mean? And I'm not being funny. Like, you know, you've got you've got wheelchair people who are using wheelchairs who um, and other disabilities who are needing physical carers. And there's nothing wrong with that, Ricky. There's absolutely yeah. nothing wrong with that. But right. in reading the submissions and doing extensive research on this topic as much as possible, given that I'm not a disability advocate, um, one of the things that uh, that I have discovered, and also through my own lived experience of blindness, is yeah. that often what tends to happen is that they the 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 planners and the indeed the scheme doesn't seem to understand that blind and vision impaired people have different challenges that yeah. being that being access to digital information um access to um braille production and yeah. access to mobility which which you just spoke about access to technology and to and this is no secret, you know. To use myself as a as a case example, um, I was actually uh, given a plan, and um, during that time, and I'd like to link that up to the submissions, and I'd like you to respond to this if you can. Um, sure. During that time that we had the plan, um, at first the woman that I, the planner that I spoke to said, "Well, I might just." Um, make a little bit of a comparison to other vision-impaired people and see what they need and then get back to you. Um, she didn't ask me what I needed. She was actually going to look through her case files and have a look. 
So I promptly told her that I didn't need her services and I called the agency and asked for another planner. And so they gave me an agency planner rather than a local planner and there aren't enough trained planners as to start off with. And during that time, um, briefly, what had happened is that um, I was given funding for a taxi allowance and I do a lot of projects, one of them being that I come here to the radio station and they were going to um, give me a taxi allowance, not just for the radio station, for the other projects that I do, including other sure. bit of work. And I also got some block funding with mobility. I got 200 hours and yeah. that was for the year. Okay, so the plan was implemented. It was in place. The money was ready to go into the account and I was all ready to go. And then the planner said to me, and by the way, she said, don't think that you're going to be getting the rest of this, any money next year for the taxis. Because once you get familiar with your environment, with mobility, she said, um, I might take that away from you. Now, That's entirely inappropriate. Now, can you explain to me why you think that would be inappropriate generally for blind people? Well, if you're a sighted person, you've got a choice about how you get from A to B. So you might choose to catch public transport and you're not inhibited in doing that because you can use your sight to navigate where you're going. Um, or you can drive, or indeed you can catch a taxi if you want to. Um, we need the same level of choice and control as what anybody else does in society, and that is what the NDI was set up to achieve. So your level of choice and control about how you get from A to B should not have been affected by the decision of one planner, one bureaucrat, about how you should do that. It's not appropriate to catch a train or a bus when you might have an appointment that you've got to get to and you've got to be in a good frame of mind to be able to address the issues within that time that you're seeing, whoever it might be. If you have issues with things like you know, public transport not being on time, if something goes wrong, which it can inevitably do. Unfamiliar uh, environments. Yeah, that's right. There might be construction, for example, um, you know, along your route that wasn't there a week ago. There can be all sorts of things that impact on the decision you make about how you get from A to B. So having that transport allowance in your plan every year is, is a given. And remember that we were told that nobody would be any worse off than what they currently are. And I remember the conversation that you had with me some time back yeah. about your particular plan. You felt that you were going to be worse off, and yeah. inevitably that's why you decided not to take it up. I um, did, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, right. I was quite excited at first because I thought to myself, yeah. hey, you know what, I can get some more computer training and maybe I can get like um, an editing program for blind people and I can start doing, you know, a little bit more skilled up in the editing process. And I can't yep. do that now because um, they decided that they weren't even going to help me with my technology needs because I had to go through an assessment. Mm -hmm. I already know what I want, you know. So in the end, I just said, you guys can stick your money. I didn't say it quite like that. I was quite polite. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I don't want their money. You know, I, I'd rather, um, you know pay out of my own pocket when I can and it might take longer and I, I wanted to just I don't want to look I don't want this show to be about myself sure. because it's not sure. it isn't about me but I wanted to be, be transparent and talk to you about it so that you could link that up and and talk about yeah. it as a case example yeah well you raise a good point there about the, the need for assessments of course there are some people yeah who of course need assessments yeah um you know, and just for the listeners, just to point out that someone who's newly blind, for example, isn't going to be familiar with the technology that's out there and so could do with some advice about, you know, what would be the best options to cater for, for their needs and uh, for their ability to, to reach that full potential. In a case like somebody like Marissa, for example, who's been totally blind since birth, uh, who has a very good knowledge of what technology is available, she's perfectly capable of making that decision herself. She doesn't need an assessor to come in and tell her that this is the best thing for her. And this, we, we certainly have made that point in our submissions around the NDIS, that there needs to be that level uh, of flexibility around what is required for each individual scenario. It shouldn't be a rigid bureaucratic process. That's what we're trying to get away from here. Uh, if, if we implement something like that, then we failed, as far as I'm concerned, in, in our ability to make the system uh, as flexible as it should be. 
Absolutely. And I, I was speaking to a, um, a young blind woman who wishes to remain anonymous because she's frightened she'll get into trouble. But she was telling me that um, she stopped the scheme. She didn't want to do the scheme. And then they didn't, no one offered her any other services. She was given, wasn't given a mobility service for a while. And then um, now she's forced to go back on it because, that, because of the mobility allowance being taken away. Oh. Yeah, and this is a difficulty uh, for, uh, well, it poses a difficulty for a number of groups of people. So there will be some people that, that won't be eligible for an individual package uh, with the NDIS. Sure. Uh, and mobility services tell us that they will continue to provide services for those people. However, it's not as easy as it once would have been to do that. Um and also, it, it does uh, force people in a way to be able to to, uh, uh, to take a package because this is the way that services are delivered now. It's, it's a purely business model. Yeah. Uh, and non-profits have had to do a lot of work to, to change their own philosophies and their own methodologies around how they deliver services to uh, fit within this model. So it's not... It's not a, uh, a smooth transition for anybody or an easy one uh, because there's a whole heap of things uh, and we haven't even spoken about uh, the individual, the uh, independent, no, I've got that totally wrong. That's all right. <laughs> uh, capacity building component, yep. um, mm. which is the ILC, information linkages and capacity building component of the NDIS. Yep. Uh, now, I'll talk about this briefly and describe yep. what it is. That component of it is um, a it, it, it's funding for organisations to deliver programs that are going to assist people to become uh, more independent, to, to build capacity, to be able to uh, perform certain activities. So it'll be things like workshops on certain issues that people could benefit from, for example. Um, we argue that there should be things that are provided under that tier. Uh, library services, for example, should be funded under there for people who are blind or vision impaired. Um, a technology help desk that Vision Australia runs, that's that's something that uh, it would be very difficult to manage from an, you know, yeah. using an individual package. Those are the sorts of activities we feel should be under the ILC. Um, the ILC has not been uh, allocated a very large amount of money, comparatively speaking, at all. Uh, and the response um, to the uh, Productivity Commission, uh, the, or that the Productivity uh, Commission provided, was that um, not providing enough money under that particular part of the scheme would be a false economy. That was their wording. Was that there would be, you know, too many service gaps, too many people would miss out if, if the government doesn't allocate Is that a true? sufficient amount of money. Yeah, yeah. So what's going to happen? Well, um, it, it's still a bit of an unknown, really. Um, there hasn't been a great deal of information come out, really, about um, how the ILC component is going to work. Uh, we seem to have been in this space for quite a few months now, unless, uh, unless other people have received information that I haven't. Um, yeah, there, there isn't much detail around what... Uh, is going to happen regarding funding. Now, that doesn't mean to say that these services will cease. No, no. Uh, it means, it means Maybe. that services... Well, it's possible, yes, that's right. There's the possibility that um, uh, certain services will cease. But, of course, you know, all of the organisations are desperately trying to avoid that and doing but all that they can. In the but, end, it is going to happen, Ricky. I'll tell you why. Because once the scheme is completely rolled out, we're all have to, we all have to go on it. Because there won't be any funding. All that block of funding is going to be put into the plans and there'll be no money left for services. Unless, of course, the state governments keep going. Well, actually, yeah, it, you raise a good point there that I need to address around the relationship between the states and the federal government uh, on this issue. So um, the taxi subsidy schemes, for example, in each state, that's a classic example where uh, we need to advocate for the states to pull their weight. Um, and that can be extended to other services as well. Um, so at the moment, different states have decided different things about the taxi subsidy scheme, uh, but 
the NDIS was set up um, with the idea that while they would replace the mobility allowance with your transport allocation in your package, the states would continue to provide the taxi subsidy schemes. And we now find ourselves in a position where we've got to advocate for yeah. that to continue. That's correct. And it, yeah. look, I, refu- I will not take mobility allowance. I'm not interested. Not interested in mobility allowance. It's, it's, for me, government money, okay, it can easily be taken away. I don't yeah. want it. Yeah. And, so, um, yeah. Oh, yeah, go on. I just wanted to say something. I'm studying community services and um, just going back to what Marissa said, I'm not vision impaired myself, but um, sure. that in we always emphasise that the, we have to ask the client what they need and not mm. do it the other way around, saying, oh, you, you know, like, you know, saying um, you need this, you need that. We emphasise yep. what they need. Like, I mean, mm. ask what they need, not... The other way around. I just thought I'd say that because the workers don't sound very good. <laughs> no, but it's it's true, Peter. What you say isn't it, Ricky? Yeah. That you have you've got to ask the client, isn't it? Yeah. Well, what can happen, and we're starting to find this as well, is that you can have a really good planner or an LAC come out. The LACs at the moment are contracted to do the planning. Uh, local area coordinators. Uh, sorry, that that stands for. Uh, and they're they're employed by organisations like the Brotherhood of St Lawrence, for example, who are contracted to go out and, and do the planning sessions. Even if you've got a really good LAC mm. and you've prepared your case really well and they understand what you're saying, it then goes to uh, to people to have the plans approved who have never met you. They've yeah. never seen you yeah. in your own context. They have no knowledge of blindness or vision impairment, let alone, mm. let alone any other disability. In fact, I was told that 95% of people... Uh, in the National Disability Insurance Agency have no knowledge of mm. disability. Mm. Uh, and so these are the kinds of people who are making decisions about planning approvals, and that's why we're seeing them come back to review, is that they are clueless. They have no idea about the lives of people with disability. They've never met the people who they're approving the plans for, and they're making life hell for people, basically, by putting, through, putting them through all this stress by going through plan reviews that should never have occurred in the first place if they had the knowledge up front and if they respected those principles of choice and control. Choice and control. (laughs) It's approximately four, yeah. Go on. It's sad that it's laughable, isn't it? It it is, yeah. This scheme was, was created based on those principles, but when it comes to implementation, the bureaucrats have no idea because that's all they are. They're bureaucrats. Yeah. They're from places like Saddlelink. Those those are the kind of places they yeah. work for before joining the scheme, and that is the problem. It's, oh. a, it's a endemic. It's a cultural problem within the organisation. Yeah. It's very interesting, and, and this is why I have chosen not to go on the scheme, and I'm going to fight tooth and nail not to go on it. I'm not interested. Yeah. Unless I can make their plans um, a little bit more inclusive. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, it should be automatic, for example, that a blind person or vision impaired person gets a taxi allowance. Um, yeah. You know, in my, in my work in radio, for example, um, I often have to go to protests. Uh, I go to protests and I, I'm actually in, you know, potentially could be potentially dangerous situation. Not dangerous, but, you know, like yeah. potentially volatile situation. And, you know, it's yeah. always good for a taxi driver to drop me off to meet someone. You know, when yeah, I'm recording, absolutely. if you're going on public transport, you know, you could meet anyone on there, you know? That's right. Yep. It's approximately 4.50 and we're speaking with Ricky Chaplin from Blind Citizens Australia Advocacy Officer and with lived experience of blindness. And this is the Do and Time show on 3CR. Just a concluding question, Ricky, and thank you so much for coming on. It was really informative. Um, the disability insurance scheme is not... Um, for prisoners, is it? You, they, prisoners don't get it? Well, I'm afraid not, no. Uh, so, yeah, pe- people in prison uh, aren't entitled to those individualised packages. I mean, obviously, once you are released from prison and you're undergoing uh, rehabilitation, you're getting settled in the community, that, that's a different uh, different kettle of fish. But, yeah, unfortunately, while you're in prison, uh, you would not be entitled to, to this package. Wow, and in, so people with a criminal record can get access then. 
Yeah, it's not so much when once you've done your time and you're out in the community again. Um, you know, that's uh, you, you've got to live your life, sort of thing. Uh, and you know, once you've done your time, you've done your time. You can't be penalised forever. So yeah, once, you know, once you're in the community, uh, you would be eligible uh, for for the scheme. So, are there any final comments that you want to make about the submissions or about the work of BCA? Um, just that. Uh, it's really important uh, for anybody who is about to develop a plan uh, to be able to uh, articulate what you need and why you need it very clearly. It's not uh, enough information to say, well, this is what I need and expect it to be approved because, as I said before, you're dealing with people who have no idea about why they're sort of vision impairment or indeed many other forms of disability. You have to be able to uh, articulate why you actually need it. Uh, if something costs a certain amount of money, why it's worth that money. Uh, and that's why it's good to have an advocate with you. Uh, so we're saying to people that you, know, you shouldn't go into these planning processes alone because it can be very stressful. And uh, there's a certain language that you have to use with bureaucrats. Uh, it, it's a bit of a game, unfortunately, and you have to know how to play the game. Um, it's not the way we want it and we will always advocate for things to be different, to be straightforward, to be down to earth but that's what we're dealing with at the moment and so we would always encourage people to have an advocate with you because you can often um, be so involved in your own life that it's hard to look in from the outside and go, well, I actually need that level of support that I didn't think I need. Um, So it's always good to run it by other people. Um, Yeah. So BCA is here to help if you are blind or vision impaired and you are in a position where you need the plan uh, developed or you need one reviewed. So, uh, yeah, happy to to talk to anyone in that position. And how do they contact BCA? Uh, BCA's office can be contacted on 1800 033 660. And I'm actually based in Queensland, but the office will take a message and I'll make sure that I get back to you as soon as I can. And believe me, uh, Ricky Chaplin's advocacy is top-notch, so I encourage everybody to call who need it. Oh, thank you, Marissa. <laughs> no, it's all good. Thanks a lot, Ricky, and, and thanks a lot for coming onto the show. It's much appreciated. No worries at all. And our regards to Emma, to Emma as well. Yeah, will do. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ricky. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And that was Ricky Chaplin from the from Blind Citizens Australia um, Advocacy Officer speaking about the disability insurance scheme and some of the pitfalls and challenges that blind and vision impaired people have had to um, ha- have had to endure. And um, yeah, so it's four fifty four. It's approximately four fifty four. We've got Beyond Zero up next. We've got about six minutes left. Are you going to do an announcement, Pete, or something? Yeah, I'll just put an announcement on. Awesome. will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well, then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that. That nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded. I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. And you're back with the Doing Time show. It's approximately 4.56. Thank you to all our guests for coming in. Thank you to uh, Geraldine from the Refugee Action Collective. Well, not coming in, but we spoke to them on the phone. Same thing. And thank you to Ricky Chaplin, BCA Advocacy Officer, as a follow-up to Disability Day, International Disability Day from yesterday. 
And so, yeah, we're nearing the end of another show and pretty soon um, we're going to be going out with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella. It's goodbye from Marissa and Peter. And just to say also that all going well, um, we hope to broadcast the Human Rights Rally um, on the 11th of December. So stay tuned for the show. Stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Do and Time show. And we've got Beyond Zero up next. Bye. See Take care of Bye. each other. Bye. Color, as long as you're a, a true fella, as long as you're a, a real fella. All the people of different races, with different lives, in different places, it doesn't matter what your name is. We got to have lots of changes, we need more brothers. If we're to make it, we need more sisters. If we're to save it, are you the one who's gonna stand up and be counted? Are you the one who's gonna be there when we shout it? Are you the one who's always ready with a helping hand? Are you the one who understands this family plan? Black fella, white fella, yellow fella, any fella. It doesn't matter what you color, as long as you're a, a true fella. All the people of different races. It's all the same when the ship is sinking We need more brothers If we're to make it We need more sisters If we're to save it Are you the one